Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam asher kitsheno b'mitzvotav etzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. Last week I told you what the topic would be for this week. I want to speak about the importance of the revival of the Jewish people and the revival of other nations and the importance of Jews and Gentiles together in the Messianic movement. It is a prophetic thing that God is doing, reviving and restoring the Jewish people. The Messianic movement is a reflection of that. But it is important to understand that God has a big plan that includes that, but also adds to it. And I want to share with you some thoughts about the importance of Jewish people and Gentiles being together in the Messianic movement. And I want to start with a passage that is not one of our readings for this weekend. It's from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6. The Lord says, it's not enough for you to be my servant who raises up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the remnant or the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to bring my salvation to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Lord says this, it's not enough. Another translation, it's too small a thing to only do that. Now here's what's important. It's not a small thing. It's not a small thing to restore and revive the Jewish people. But what the Lord says is, I am committed to that as a priority, but I'm also committed to something else. I also will make you a light for the nations to bring my salvation to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when it says the uttermost parts of the earth, it's speaking in reference to the land of Israel. And so you've got, as Yeshua once said, you've got Jerusalem there in the center, and then you've got what's now called the West Bank, but is actually Judea and Samaria. And then you've got the uttermost parts of the earth that includes Jacksonville <laughs> and places like this that are quite far away. The Lord is saying it's not enough. It's not enough. Now, some translations get this wrong. And they say it's a small thing to do this. Or it's an insignificant thing. That's the implication from some of the, the wrong translations. But actually, the Lord is saying, I've got something big in mind, and then I've got something that depends on that, that also is big, and he's speaking about an idea that is very difficult, I think, for many people to, to grasp, and that is, I've got this top priority, and I want you to keep it as a top priority, but I want to add an additional priority to it without diminishing the top priority. Now, when you get this wrong, you come to a number of wrong conclusions. If you think God's finished with his first priority, then you say, okay, now this is his only priority. But it's important to understand that the new priority draws its life and power and even depends on the first priority. 
The Lord is saying, I am going to do what I set out to do. I'm going to revive the Jewish people. I'm going to restore the Jewish people. And Isaiah was bringing this word during a time when Israel really needed restoration. And there were many times like that. And there continue to be times like that where the Jewish people need to be revived and restored and renewed and returned to God in order to experience all the fullness that God has in mind. Fulfilling the top priority helps us to fulfill the next priority, the second priority. And there's a synergy in the two priorities. So it's not an either or. I want you to get that. It is keep this top priority, now add another priority to it, and yet keep the top priority. Now, when I was thinking about this, I, I didn't tell him last night, but he happened to be in the room, and so I decided to, to do what was in my heart, and I put Dexter Siegler on the spot because I wanted to use him as an example because I knew he had some experience where he needed to um, deal with such priorities. And Dexter's right here sitting next to his wonderful wife, Tanya. Dexter waved to everybody, so yeah, there he is. Now, what you might not know is that in high school, Dexter was a star football player. And I asked him these questions last night. Um, and so I knew most of the answers in advance, but some I didn't know. But since I heard him last night, I may throw in some trick questions, Dexter. <laughs> Just get ready. I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay, so Dexter was a star football player in high school, and your position was? Quarterback. 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 And he was hefty. How big were you then? 135 pounds. 135 pounds. And was that wet or dry? <laughs> Soaking wet, 135. Right, that's somewhere around featherweight, isn't it? <laughs> And he was a star quarterback. Well, he ended up going to University of Miami and playing football in college with a fantastic team, the Miami... Not the Dolphins, that's not university. Hurricanes. Yeah, yeah, Miami's famous for hurricanes in more than one way. And there was a change of position. The new position is cornerback. Okay, quarterback, cornerback. And what does a cornerback do for those that have no idea in the soccer players? You try to stop the wide receivers from catching the football. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they wanted you on the team. How happy were they with your size? Uh, not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't really happy that he was um, 135 pounds. And so they put him on a program, and from July sometime? He went from 135 
from the second week of July to the end of September, from 135 to 175. And that must have been a lot of beer. <laughs> or milkshakes. <laughs> now, they didn't want him to have a beer gut. They wanted you bigger, right? But you know, when you get bigger, sometimes you slow down. Yes. <laughs> but they didn't want you to slow down. What did they want you to do? Faster. Big and fast. So he gained 40 pounds of fast-moving muscle and had an incredible college career, was All-American at, at 175. And you can actually find um, football cards online with Dexter. Yeah, I have one. And just for fun, just so that you know, because we're friends, uh, he was up doing Torah reading one day. And I knew he had his phone on vibrate or something. And so I found a football card of him and some press conference he attended. And I tweeted, not tweeted, I texted him some pictures of himself. And he didn't know what was going on. And so, you know, it's during the tour service and he looks and it's like, <laughs> and he looked at me like, Rabbi, cut it out. I'm up here doing something serious. <laughs> Big and fast. Not enough to be big and not enough to be fast. It was necessary to become big and fast. That's what was required. Well, then, after that, he ends up in Seattle with the Seahawks and the NFL. And they say, you know, we want you back down to 135. No, it's the NFL. <laughs> and, and you know, the best guys in college are like the lowest rank in the NFL. Because <laughs> those guys are so big and fast and skillful and all that. And so they weren't happy with 175. No. No. 185, 190. And that probably involved a lot of fritos. And <laughs> now, what did you have to do to, to bulk up even more? Uh, uh, train twice a day during the off season and come down until the season starts. And they put me on a certain diet because I like chicken. A lot of chicken. <laughs> mm -hmm. He decimated the chicken population. <laughs> In his area. So is eating high protein? Yes. Eating high protein and lifting a lot. And he got bigger and faster. So say this with me. Big and fast. Do you see? He had to add priorities to the priorities he already had without giving up 
the priorities he already had. So it wasn't just a matter of gaining weight. Do you understand that? How many of you know it's relatively easy to gain weight? <laughs> but to gain muscle mass and speed while you are working on a more competitive environment, this is tough. But that's what was required. And that's what Dexter did. It's a good example, don't you think? Big and fast, you have a priority. And then you have to add another priority to it without sacrificing the first priority. And that helps me to understand what, what the Lord was doing when he was speaking to Isaiah. And he was saying, I know the priority. And that is the revival of the Jewish people, the restoration of the Jewish people. I know this is a top priority, but I've got something in mind that depends on that priority, and that is to reach all the nations of the world. It's important to understand the Lord wasn't saying, I'm finished with the Jewish people. That was hardly the case. He was saying, I know that in order to reach this broken world, I need a strong nation. The descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I need them strong. I will watch over them. I will protect them. There will be a remnant that will make it through these challenging times, all the challenging times, all the adversity, all the hostility, all the threats. The Lord says, there's going to be a remnant, and I am going to preserve this remnant, and it's going to be strong. Amen. Strong in the Lord. Amen. And in this strength, then I will be able to do what I have in mind, which is to reach out to the whole world. And these two priorities belong together. They they are incredibly important. Now, I want to I wanna connect this with some things that may be going on in your life or may be part of your experience, and you may not always make sense out of the things in your life. How many of you can, can verify that on a regular basis you see how broken this world is? And yet, there's something that rises up in you that says, somebody's got to do something. I'm willing. I'm willing to do my part to help. I want to make a difference. How many can verify that? That's in your heart sometimes. You look at this broken world and you say, God, use me. You may be involved in defending or protecting people. And the people you are standing up for may be unpopular with others around you. As an example, you may have a heart for unborn children, but you have friends that think that's crazy or extreme. Or you may have a heart for immigrants who come from unpopular places, and your friends think, why do you care about them? You may have a heart for people who were abused or people who, who have experienced persecution. Because simply, 
of the color of their skin or because they're from a minority group. You may be involved in that. You may have this thing of justice rising up in you where you, you can't stand the, the cruelty and the unfairness of the world and its systems. And you stand up for others, but there's, there's a mercy side to it. You want to act with kindness and compassion towards them. But there may be an aggressive side to you as well, where you speak or you act with boldness, even when other people are passive or unconcerned, and you don't stop just because you're too loud for everybody else. How many can relate to that? And people sometimes run for safety when you're in that condition. In fact, there may even be a violent side to you. If you served in the military or the police, as examples, you may have had to use violence to defend and protect other people. And you've had to, to channel and control sometimes these qualities because uh, they're in you, and you know what? God put them in you in order to be harnessed for his purposes. And I want to connect those, those things to this prophecy about the redemption and the restoration of the Jewish people on one hand and the nations on the other hand. And I, I know some of you would feel like you're an outsider sometimes and you wonder why, doesn't, why don't other people see and why don't they care? And you may even feel like a cynic sometimes. How many can relate to that? And, and you say, you know, this world stinks. Let's just wrap it up, get it over with, and get on with things. But that other side that wants to make a difference now is alive in you. And God uses people like this to do the difficult work of revival and restoration in a hostile and broken world. I want you to understand that. You want to help fix things, but you know that they're broken. But you may at times wonder, can they be fixed? But you know, there is, there is a word from the Lord that says there will come a time when nations won't learn to make war against each other, but to bless each other. And if you think about that, you may be tempted to think, ah, that's pie in the sky. That's naive. If you talk about it, like if you hear me talk about it, you may say, oh, come on. You know how bad things are. They're only going to get worse. You may feel like even if it's true, it's probably not going to happen, at least not in this lifetime, or anybody's lifetime near. But I want to tell you this. We are called to make peace between ourselves. And we don't have, we don't have the opportunity to do that in the abstract world, but we have to do it in the concrete world among ourselves. 
And in fact, the Messianic movement and this Messianic synagogue is a prophetic anticipation of what God wants to do. And so we have people from different nations, people from different ethnicities, different backgrounds, who are joining together in a Jewish family so that we can practice what God has in mind to do. It's a powerful ministry, but it's not an easy ministry. There are times some times when the Jewish prophets said, I, I can't even do this. We read in the Haftorah portion in Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse 4, we read how Jeremiah had a conversation, a spiritual conversation with the Lord. And the Lord was talking to him, and the way Jeremiah is written, it's sort of in the first person where he's describing, this is what happened to me. So Jeremiah 1, verse 4, he says, well, here's, here's the word from the Lord that came to me. Here's what the Lord said to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I separated you for myself. I've appointed you to be a prophet for the nations, for the goyim, for the Gentiles. Now, let me ask you, how many of you know that Jeremiah was a Jewish prophet? Okay, we're not talking about Jeremiah the bullfrog. I don't know his calling. But Jeremiah was a Jewish prophet, and that's why the book of Jeremiah is in the Jewish Bible. He is recognized as a Jewish prophet. But in addition to being a Jewish prophet, he had a calling to be a prophet to the Gentiles. And the Lord spoke to him and told him that when he was young. Verse 6, I mean, re remember this. The Lord said, I've appointed you to be a prophet to the Gentiles. And then Isaiah said, oi. Something like that. He said, oh, good Lord. I don't even know how to speak. I'm just a child. Verse 7, and the Lord said to me, don't say you're just a child. Stop talking like that. Don't say I'm just a child. For you will go wherever I send you. And you will speak whatever I order you to speak. You will carry out your orders, young man. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, says the Lord, to rescue you. Now that's good news. Don't be afraid. I'm with you to rescue you. It's good news on one hand. On the other hand, you know what it means. You are going to trouble. You're going to get into trouble, and I'm going to rescue you. Now, some of you have had similar experiences. You're just trying to follow the Lord, and you keep getting into trouble. How many can relate to that? It's like, I didn't want to make tr Well, maybe I did want to, but... The Lord says, don't be afraid. I'm taking you into terrible circumstances, terrible situations. I'll be with you. You'll be out front. I'll be with you. And I will rescue you. 
And if you read about the life of Jeremiah, you will find that he needed rescuing quite a bit, even from his own people. And he went through a dilemma, the prophet's dilemma. He had the word burning inside of him, and when he kept it inside, he couldn't even live. He couldn't pay attention to life. And then when he expressed it, he just got into trouble. And there's that moment, remember, when he's thrown into a well? You should read about this. He's thrown into a well, and he's just crying out and said, you tricked me. <laughs> the Hebrew's more brutal. It's something like, you deceive me. And the Lord says, hey, I told you. I told you what was going to happen. I told you what it was going to take. You just need to be big and fast. You need to put it together and and bulk up, strengthen up, and get faster. You've got more to do. It's going to require more of you. Quit complaining. Work out. (laughs) Jeremiah was called to be a prophet to the nations, but he was a prophet to Israel. The global scope of our calling in the Messianic movement is to the Jewish people, but it's also to the nations. And Jeremiah did not think he was up to it. And in fact, we may feel the same. With that in mind, let's read once again Isaiah 49, verse 6. The Lord says, it's not enough for you to be my servant who raises up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the remnant of Israel. I also will make you a light to the nations. Not enough. Say that with me. Not enough. I will also. Say that with me. I will also. Now, what are the obstacles that we face? Well, one obstacle is a sense of inadequacy. Jeremiah said, you know, I can't do this. I'm just a kid. The Lord said, don't say that. And there's this moment we read about in chapter 1 where the Lord says, okay, tell me what you see. (laughs) Jeremiah's like... I don't know, I I see, and he starts describing what he sees, and the Lord says, right. And then the Lord says, see, I can make you see. I can give you vision, spiritual vision with your spiritual eyes. The Lord says to Jeremiah, you're not adequate, of course, but I've called you And I, in you, and with you, I will make you adequate. So we know we're we're not adequate. We can't do what's called of us. So we must depend on the grace, the favor, and the giftings of God. And we need the Holy Spirit. We need his presence. We need spiritual gifts that he gives us, his guidance, his leadership, his empowerment. Remember when Yeshua said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses? But first, you need the Holy Spirit. Don't leave home without him. (laughs) Another obstacle we face is fear or reluctance. We may be afraid of how we're going to be received. 
for example, fear of Jewish rejection. That can cause people to only go to Gentiles. Well, I'm afraid of going to Jewish people. I mean, Jewish people can feel this. I don't want to go to Jewish people because I'll be rejected. In fact, this can be so strong, but I mean, Gentiles can also have this fear. Anybody can have this fear. And some people are so narrowed by this fear that they make their target audience Gentile Christians. I'm telling the truth. Stay with me. And so they'll go to Gentiles who are already believers trying to tell them this good news. And it's like, well, we already came to the Lord. Well, you need to come to the Lord again this way. No, that is missing the point of it. Another obstacle is a lack of desire. I don't want to go to the nations. I don't even like the nations. <laughs> That's a common Jewish response. Think about how they treated us. Think about what's happened. Think about the Holocaust. But you don't have to think about modern times. Jonah had this attitude. The Lord said, Jonah, I've got a word for you to bring to Nineveh. And Jonah said, I don't think so. <laughs> and the Lord said, no, I'm sending you to Nineveh. And Jonah said something like, I, I would rather be swallowed up by a big fish than... And the Lord said, oh, okay. <laughs> Whatever it takes. <laughs> but there has been a reluctance on the part of the Jewish people to go to the nations because of a lack of desire or motivation. And today, you may, as a, as a Jew, be too familiar with Christian anti-Semitism, and you have to struggle with bitterness and, and unforgiveness. It, it reminds me of an experience that I had in one city in the former Soviet Union, and I was called to go there, I, th I think it was in Belarus, and they had never heard, they had no idea about the Messianic movement. And it didn't seem to me that they even knew that Jesus was a Jew. And I'm telling them some stuff about the Messianic vision and what God is wanting to do. And it's clear to me they know nothing. And they're ignorant. And... I was really tormented by their ignorance. It troubled me. And I was complaining to the Lord like, this is terrible, they don't know anything. And the Lord said, that's why I brought you. Plow unplowed ground. And it was a shock to me. You know, I wanted somebody else to have done the work. But then I realized what a great privilege it is to go to people who don't know and to plow the ground and to cultivate and to open up hearts and minds to understand. It's a great privilege. It's not something to complain about. It's something to rejoice in, to be able to speak to those who haven't heard. It's important. So we're called 
We're called first to our Jewish people, and we're also called to the nations among us and around us to be a light to the nations. It's, it's important that, that we recognize that. And, and this congregation, this synagogue, is a prophetic anticipation of what God wants to do. I have a desire that every country and every people group that we reach globally through our podcasts would be represented personally here in the synagogue. And we're reaching well over 100 countries. Wouldn't it be great if there was someone from every nation, I don't mean just countries and geopolitical bodies, I mean ethnic groups and nationalities. Wouldn't it be great to have that diversity and to have in a synagogue with Jewish followers of Messiah, people from all the different nations who have a heart for the same. There was a time when I thought it's important for our synagogue to be a spiritual home for Jewish believers in Messiah, for Messianic Jews, for their families, for their children and their grandchildren. And just a few weeks ago, Sandy said, it's not enough. We also need to be a place that is open to every kind of Jewish person who has questions, who, so that any kind of Jewish person who wants to find answers can come and can explore here with us. So it's not just a home for those of us who have already decided, but we have to make this a place that is comfortable for every kind of Jew who wants to come and explore with us. Now, Jeremiah teaches us something, how important it is to tell the Lord how you think and how you feel. To be honest, not to suppress it, but then to hear from him. Jeremiah said, Lord, I hear what you want to do. I don't like it. And I don't want to do it, and I don't think I can do it. And the Lord said, I hear you. Tough. (laughs) Stop talking like that. And Jeremiah then subordinated his feelings and his thoughts. He didn't suppress them. He was honest with the Lord, but he was humble with the Lord and said, not my will, but your will be done. And he was able to say, Lord, you know how I feel, but I know how you feel. You know how I think, but I know how you think, and you win. And I will place my feelings and my thoughts under yours. It's very powerful. Now, Yeshua models for us this idea of the top priority being the restoration of the Jewish people and then adding another priority to it. And as an example, there was a point where he said, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You remember him saying that. It almost sounds rude, especially if you're on the receiving end of it. But it's not the last thing that he had to say. He had more to say, but in Matthew 10, verses 5, 6, and 7, these 12 disciples Yeshua sent out with the following instructions. Don't go on the road of the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's a focused priority. Do you see it? 
And as you go preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. So that's one part. And his disciples do it, and they're effective. And then Yeshua later says, this is Matthew 28, verse 19. He says, now go and make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But then he said, and we read this in Acts 1, verse 8, but wait, don't go yet. Wait until you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. So go, but wait, wait, wait. You need the Holy Spirit. Don't try to do this without the Holy Spirit. And then, fast forward to Acts chapter 8, verse 5, we see Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. And so you see how, how this calling emerges, the two sides to it. This top priority, go to the Jewish people and be a servant of God for the revival and restoration of the Jewish people, for encouragement, to show mercy compassion, kindness, faith. And as you're doing that, you get ready to do part B. And it's important to understand that the second part, going to all the nations, depends on the first part. If you bring the good news to Jewish people and Jewish people are restored, you will be amazed how many Gentiles get restored along the way. But you can go down easy street and just look for, for Gentiles who are open and never find a Jew. Go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel with the idea of being effective. This is important. With the idea of making a difference. This is important. With the idea of fulfilling what God has in mind. Because God has a plan to fix the world. And he's going to do it family by family, nation by nation. And he's going to use individuals who receive this into their hearts and are willing to do the hard work even knowing that there's going to be opposition. How many know that there are certain places if you stand up for the Jewish people, you're going to get in trouble? So you already know. How many know that there are certain places if you talk about the Jewishness of Yeshua, you're going to get in trouble? But there are also places where if you talk about the importance of the nations, you're going to get in trouble. Because some people don't care because they're cynical or they've lost the desire. But I want to challenge you. We are called to our Jewish people and we are called to all the nations of the world. They fit together, and we as a synagogue are a prophetic anticipation of what God plans to do on the whole earth. Big and fast. That's what we need to be. We need to add our priorities together and not displace any priorities. And if we do that, you know what? God will be with us, and we'll have lots of trouble. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the great calling that you've called us to, that we could join in 
and, and serve you in the ways that y- you have in mind. And we, we know, Lord, that you really do have a plan that will repair, will fix, and, and will redeem this broken world that we're living in. And we want to be your servants in this great cause. And so we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. In the name of Yeshua. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing, and please stand. If, if you're standing all alone, I encourage you to move enough so that you're not. Sandy just said, big and fast. I brought big and fast with me. Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Prince of Peace, Yeshua the Messiah. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Join us for coffee and fellowship next door.